people want to make provision for their future, for their families. They want to make decisions about what to do with their lives. And, and those things are all possible in, in a free market liberal society, uh, rather than one in which people are expected to walk into roles that have been mapped out for them by someone else, someone in the civil service or in government. So not only does it work, it, it's, it's more moral. It, it enables people to be master of their fate, to be more in command of their lives. And because it is, you know, A, more efficient and B, more moral, it's two powerful arguments why this, this system is not going to be replaced by someone, some system dreamed up by a few intellectuals sitting around a table. Welcome to the PIM Factory, the Addison Institute's podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's special episode, I'm joined by Dr. Madsen Peary, the president and co-founder of the Adam Smith Institute. Today, we're going to dive into the history of the ASI. But first, Madsen, we're recording just days after a big milestone for you. It's your 18th, sorry, I mean, your 80th birthday. Um, How did you celebrate, Madsen? Well, the biggest celebration was a small uh, black tie dinner for eight people in a private room at the Carlton Club. But I celebrated the following day by taking the entire staff of the Adam Smith Institute to a rather posh lunch in the wine room of the Carlton Club. Now, because we're not supposed to have big celebrations because of social distancing, I've been holding a series of rolling celebrations. And the highlight will probably be the one where we get to taste eight different vintage ports and Madeiras. That will be, again, a very small affair, just eight privileged people. But it's a cause for celebration. Absolutely. And I hear there's an even bigger anniversary coming up. Yes, indeed. And the, um, the port and wine, the port wine and Madeira tasting will actually take place on the anniversary, uh, August 31st, of the founding of the Adam Smith Institute 43 years ago. We never normally celebrate that because people assume that we were founded by Adam Smith himself 250 years ago. <laughs> And if they realised we were Johnny-come-lately upstarts, we wouldn't command anything like the same international respect. I think from all your work over the years, the ASI does command a lot of respect. I just want to start by stepping back a bit, though, and thinking about the ASI in terms of a kind of story of, of your life. It's, it's definitely taken up a large chunk of it. Um, where did you grow up and, and what did you study and how did you come to the kind of political interests that you had? Yes, I suppose the formative interest uh, was uh, the University of St. Andrews. Um, I, I, my first degree was, was a, an MA in history from Edinburgh. I then did a PhD at St. Andrews and much later in life, a, a master's degree in, uh, from Pembroke College, Cambridge. Uh, that's my first uh, formal entry into economics. Um, I suppose the biggest influence was St. Andrews because the Conservative Association there was a libertarian and free market before uh, the Tory party was ever touched by such ideas. And um, we used to discuss in the Students' Union all kinds of crazy propositions, like uh, selling off council houses at discounted prices, like privatising the telephone service and the utilities, like uh, putting the state industries, uh, like the manufacture of cars, ships and planes, into the private sector. And all of those ideas developed there, of course, later became the stock in trade, of the Adam Smith Institute and indeed of the uh, Thatcher administration. At that point in time, everything you stood for was obviously not where the Tory party was, both in the sense that as free marketeers supporting smaller government, but also from a social libertarian perspective, uh, the Tories were anything but that uh, at that point in time, weren't they? Well, there was a significant, um, shall I call it, liberal element within the Tory party. 
but not on economics. On economics, it was um, very centrist post-war consensus. It was, after all, um, Edward Heath. You know, he was elected in um, 1970 unexpectedly uh, on a quite a radical um, free market platform. A group had met at Selsden Park and, and they issued the Selsden Park Manifesto, which became um, the Tory party's election manifesto. And when Heath was unexpectedly elected, he tried to do those things and uh, he met with serious opposition and gave up. And he thought that because he couldn't do it, it couldn't be done. He thought it was, you know, medieval, out of date stuff. And in the modern world, we all had to accept the mixed economy, uh, centrism, state controls, state ownership. And uh, one reason why he ended up hating Margaret Thatcher so much was that she proved that you could do it. <laughs> it wasn't that it couldn't be done. It's just that Heath couldn't do it. So while you were at St. Andrews, you also met uh, some of the other key characters in the story, particularly um, Eamon and Stuart Butler. That's right. They, they, we met through the um, Conservative Association uh, and uh, it, the, the, um, the sort of free market libertarian hegemony lasted for something like a decade um, uh, with, with various people you know, coming in. The, the average university lifespan there was uh, roughly four years. In Scotland, in, in arts, you go straight to, to an MA, but it is uh, an undergraduate degree. And so over, the, over those uh, 10 years, uh, people came and went, and, and uh, still the, the flame of, um, of, of market economics was kept alive. And it, it began to exert a major influence, uh, not only on the conservative student movement, but on the conservative party at large. Mm. So after you finished up at St. Andrews, you ended up over in the States, um, both working in Congress and then subsequently at, at Hillsdale College. Yes, I was working in, in Congress just for a year on uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, there was an organization of relatively conservative um, congressmen, and, and they formed uh, the Republican Study Committee, and, and they pooled a small part of their staff allowances to, to, uh, to fund a, a, a joint research group. There were about 12 of us. And we were headed up by um, Edwin Fulner, uh, who, who um, immediately afterwards uh, went on to become president of the Heritage Foundation and build it up into a major fighting force. But at the time I first met him, he was head of the uh, Republican Study Committee, and that was my first employment in the States. It, it was very um, useful because it taught me how the political process actually works, the compromises you have to do, the, the measures you have to take, the interest groups that try to obstruct you. And, uh, you know, when I went on from there to, to become professor of philosophy at Hillsdale, uh, I, I never forgot those basic lessons. And in, indeed, <coughs> I was succeeded uh, there by um, Eamon Butler, who also <laughs> learned those lessons the practical way. And it enabled us always at the Adam Smith Institute to have a very, uh, what you might call a practical frame of mind. We wanted policies that would actually work, uh, not the theoretical pure policy that, that looks good in the mind, but one that works in the real world. And you then uh, left the United States to come back to Britain to, to found the ASI. Uh, what sparked the idea? What, what, what led you? What was, the, was there a moment? Was there an event? Was there something that um, well, gave you this idea that, in fact, you wanted to, to head back to the, what was kind of a bit of a basket case of a country at the time and, and start this new think tank? Yes, the intellectual influence was, although he never knew it, so James Buchanan. Um, he'd published um, Public Choice Theory, and uh, it basically analysed um, you know, why those in government and, and the bureaucracy are not dispassionate guardians of the public good. They behave just like 
business people trying to maximize their own advantage. And that explains why certain policies cannot succeed, because you'll be thwarted by the self-interest of the legislators and the civil servants. Uh, fine, uh, and that is uh, an analytical critique. Uh, we wondered uh, at Hillsdale whether you could set up a creative counterpart to that. In other words, an institute that would research and develop policies designed to overcome those tendencies and those obstacles. In other words, to craft policies that, that got around the, the opposition that you might get from legislators and bureaucrats by building in something for them by, uh, so to speak, disarming uh, the opposition of interest groups uh, but by giving them different interests in return. So uh, instead of uh, confiscating privileges that people enjoyed, uh, you offered them alternative ones instead. And the policy was, was crafted to, to, to uh, win the support of legislators and civil servants and indeed the interest groups who might otherwise have been aggrieved by it. And so the idea was to form an institute not to research theoretical economics, but to research and develop practical policies to put those uh, ideas, those theoretical ideas, into effect. We, we often uh, compared ourselves in those early stages, perhaps a little, uh, a little grandiloquently. We, we, we compared ourselves to the engineers, like um, uh, James Watt and, and uh, uh, George Stevenson. It's all very well to have pure scientists like Newton and Kelvin uh, doing the laws of motion and expansion of gases and things like this. But if you sit then waiting for a steam engine, you're going to have to wait a long time. It takes a second kind of uh, creative input from people who will turn those theoretical ideas into practical machines. And mm. so we call ourselves the engineers of policy. Mm. It's kind of a very similar distinction to the one that Matt Ridley makes in his work about innovation. He talks about invention uh, and scientific creation as very separate to the process of innovation. And you talk about how we propose things which people regard as being on the edge of lunacy. The next thing you know, they're on the edge of policy. And I think in many ways, I think Tank kind of responds to that idea that everything in politics is just about interests and that ideas have no part to play and everyone's just kind of play, playing a game, seeking out their own self-interest, when in fact ideas, although of course can sometimes come and crash up against interests, ideas can be very powerful when they're persuasively put. Yes, the, the idea, of course, is... Um that, that people are better guardians of their money than the government is. And uh, people spend more wisely when they're spending their own money. And they are, um, shall we say, um, less reckless in, in how they disperse funds than government is. Now, th that is just a theoretical idea. Uh, you might say that people have more knowledge about their own interests and their own values than government does, or, or indeed civil servants do. Yes, uh, indeed true. Uh, how do you turn those principles into practical policies. How do you stop the government from trying to spend too much of other people's money? How do you stop the civil servants from trying to run too large a part of their lives? Mm. So you're here with this great idea in Hillsdale. Uh, you want to set up a new organisation that is going to finally put forward policy ideas that can change the world. Uh, but it's not always quite that easy. Um, you write in, in Think Tank, which is about the founding of the ASI, that it was a mountain to climb and no one seemed inclined to help. Why was it so difficult to, to found the ASI and how did you overcome that? What did it take to get this organisation that didn't exist up and running and, and having substantial influence over the coming decades? Well, we assumed at the start that naturally American uh, foundations and donors would be only too happy to help Britain out of the mess it was in by uh, helping to fund this, this new type of think tank. Uh, 
uh, alas, they were not remotely interested. And uh, in any case, the U.S. charity laws made it very difficult for them to fund, uh, uh, to channel money to overseas outfits. Um, we, we basically had to do it without any money at all. And, and that meant we, we couldn't just set up a think tank. We had to grow one uh, from, from nothing. Uh, for example, um, the premises that, that we acquired uh, in, uh, in Westminster, we knew we had to be within what was called the Bell Area of the House of Commons, meaning um, within an eight-minute walk. So if members of Parliament were, were visiting and the division bell rang, they'd be able to get back in time to vote in the chamber. So, you know, we drew a circle on the map and then started treading the streets, working out where we might stay. And by sheer chance, we, we found a place with uh, a very small, unexpired lease uh, and that became not only our offices, it became uh, also the living quarters for myself and Stuart and then Eamon. We, we had bedrooms at opposite ends of that flat and, and an office in the, in the middle. And it really was a complete shoestring affair. We used to say uh, uh, string, ceiling, wax and paper clips was, was actually what built the Adam Smith Institute. Mm. I think many people will be surprised listening to this, uh, assuming that the Adam Smith Institute from the beginning was just absolutely um, awash with millions and millions of pounds from some kind of establishment source. But in fact, uh, the ASI was very much pushing against a lot of establishment thinking, pushing against the cosy relationships that existed between government and unions and big business. There isn't really necessarily a lot of money in ideas, at least to begin with, until you can persuade some people that these are the ideas that are going to provide a successful society. No, and we had nowhere to... Um to entertain potential donors or, or, or uh, MPs. I mean, we actually moved into um, premises in, in, uh, in Westminster on, on literally onto, onto bare boards. There was no furniture. We, we, were, um, we were running the Adam Smith Institute from tea chests up to, which we picked up in the street from uh, shops that had discarded them. Uh, we didn't have a telephone. We had to use a, a payphone around the corner and, and put coins in the slot in order to, to phone <laughs> and, uh, and uh, press. Um, and we tried to get a telephone installed, and uh, of course, it was then run by the government as a nationalised entity, monopoly, of course. And uh, they told us it would be 14 months before we could get a business line installed. And uh, when that did happen, we wouldn't be allowed to 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 buy a telephone. We'd have to rent uh, at 14 pound 65 a quarter every three months. Uh, a Bakelite black instrument with a rotary dial that had been designed in the 1930s. However, uh, there's always a way round, and um, a little bit of money changed hands, and we got it done within two weeks. <laughs> so we, we were, uh, so to speak, uh, online, uh, at least as far as telephones were concerned. But people have very little idea of how primitive things were in general in Britain. We had the poorest economy in Europe, the highest strike record, we had the worst public services. Um, it is almost unbelievable how, uh, how bad it was and even more unbelievable how rapidly it all changed. Mm. Well, what activities did you begin with uh, as an organisation? Well, it was, again, one of those things, pure chance. We, we, um, we held conferences uh, in order to bring together the very small number of like-minded uh, people. And at one of those, uh, we met a young uh, economist called John Burton, and uh, he did a study on the union power in British politics, and he called it the Trojan horse. And he identified what he called the power vortex, by which uh, the unions uh, help uh, left-wing governments get elected, 
who then pass laws that are more favorable to government, to, to unions. And so the, the unions then have even more power and they can be even more help to left-wing governments. He called this the power vortex and we published it under the title The Trojan Horse uh, by chance uh, in that January uh, 1979. Uh, it, it was the winter of discontent in which virtually all of the public services went on strike. The garbage was piled high, 30 foot high in Leicester Square in plastic sacks. Um, rats roamed the streets, you know, poking open the garbage bags. Um, at one stage, um, I think it was Liverpool, um, the undertakers went on strike and people had to be buried at sea. Uh, there was one incident where the ambulance crew was called out on strike and left their patient on a stretcher in the snow while they drove off to join the strike. Um, it, it was almost unbelievable. And we published uh, our paper right in the middle of that maelstrom. The result was the Daily Telegraph commissioned John Burton to write two feature articles on successive days, and they did a leader, and questions were asked in the House. And suddenly we'd arrived, the Adam Smith Institute, as as one of our people once said, it's as if we'd just crawled out of the woodwork. Um, <laughs> we, we, we went from nowhere to being uh, a, a reputable, you know, and interesting think tank. Mm. And it was that one publication, the very first, that, that did that. And, and what did that teach you about the importance of, I guess, timing when it comes to policy proposals and then how you can work with the media to get mm. attention? It, it ought to have taught us, but it, it was many years before we actually picked up that lesson. Uh, you know, in, in general, we, we have benefited by chance rather than by design. Uh, you know, the timing of our publications has just happened to coincide with events. But we did learn one very important thing, which is that you must work with the press. Um, they receive a mountain of, of press releases every day, and they chuck them one by one into the waste bin. And you have to say something in the opening line that captures their attention. So they'll put your press release on one side to see if they might look at it later. And, and so we, we used to say, speak softly and carry a loud press release. And we, we would try to make the press release as dramatic as possible to capture their attention. And fundamentally, we were in effect writing the story for them. And at the end, they would change a few words and put their byline underneath it and, and file it. Um, and we learned to do that at a very early stage. Uh, it is, of course, completely different now in the days of uh, internets and emails. But then it was a very physical paper thing. You actually sent the book out with a press release by Royal Mail to the newspaper offices. And tell me, tell me a bit more about what was, it, I think, your second or third publication, the Quengo, Quengo, Quengo. Ah, yes. Um, a backbench conservative MP, Philip Holland, had uh, for, for uh, indeed years been investigating remorselessly the spread of these quasi-autonomous non-governmental organisations, Quangos in which these appointed bodies um, had effectively real powers and they had huge budgets. And without stuff going through Parliament, they could, in effect, uh, change the law. And, uh, you know, we discovered from uh, Philip's answers that, that there were, in fact, a total of 3,068 of these bodies. Um, so we, we thought we'd dramatise it by publishing them all on one page. And that meant folding up a page like a concertina so it fitted between the covers of our publication. So when you opened it, out dropped a 12-foot long page with all of these quangos. It rather dramatized by the sheer length of the page, the number of them. I indeed, um, we did the usual um, press releases and uh, uh, ITN asked us, uh, could they cover it on the evening news the, the, the night before? 
and they went along to the printers and the longest page in the world is unveiled tomorrow. Uh, and there was this page being, being printed, uh, you know, rolling off the presses. We, we had uh, Philip Holland standing uh, on the House of Commons uh, terrace, holding the, the page, blowing in the wind. And that photograph appeared on the front page of almost every newspaper as we did the machine printed copies of it and sent them out. We, we then, just to help the press along, um, picked out a few of the quangos they might be interested in, you know, the Hadrian's Wall Advisory Committee. You know, do we really need one in this day and age? <laughs> the Scots seemed to have been less of a menace than they were in Roman days, you know. Uh, my my favourite was the Detergents and Allied Products Voluntary Notification Scheme Scrutiny Group. <laughs> I've still no idea what it did. Um, and we did quite the quaintest quango and the costliest quango. And we, we basically fed the press the, the story so that um, we wanted to make quangos an object, A, of fear, so that people would notice that the powers they were acquiring, the extra legal, non-parliamentary powers, and also ridicule. We wanted to, uh, to mock them, to make fun of them. So instead of people aspiring to be appointed to quangos, uh, people would start refusing to be associated with such bodies. And uh, it, it said it was. We, we did get all of the newspapers with our quangos, um, and uh, it, it taught me an object lesson. You know that you can indeed uh, lead the press in, in, into, in effect, formulating a campaign for you. And not too long after all these first publications, not too long after your founding, of course, uh, Margaret Thatcher was elected, uh, very much changing the course of British history. Can I just say one thing there, by the way? Um, she was, in fact, elected just before Quango, Quango, Quango came out. And uh, we planted questions in the House from friendly MPs. Had she seen the publication? Yes, indeed. And it's very serious. We, I have appointed a committee of inquiry, a senior civil servant, to examine these Quangos and to see how many of them we might get rid of. So we got immediate action from the Prime Minister, who was already in office at that stage. Mm. And and over the subsequent years, uh, the ASI put out, no doubt, dozens of, of papers uh, with a big focus on privatisation, issues like free ports. Um, and then you also, of course, did the Omega project. What really stands out to you in terms of the, the Thatcher as your biggest contribution uh, to policy? Curious enough, it, 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 if you ask me, you know, what was the biggest contribution to policy? It wasn't any specific policy. It's just we were there uh, day after day, radio, television, newspapers, beating the drum for free enterprise, for uh, choices, for privatisation, for the fact that the private economy worked better than the public economy. And we were just out there constantly, uh, you know, <laughs> really, as I say, beating the drum for, for free enterprise. There were individual policies. And our greatest, I suppose, um, cumulative one was what we call the Omega Project. We looked at the political cycle and worked out that um, a conservative government would get elected on a manifesto. It would try to implement some of its manifesto ideas. It would run into uh, opposition. It would start losing support. And uh, if it were lucky, it, it would get re-elected with a smaller majority and then limp through a very drab and dull second term. And then it would be replaced by the opposition at the next election. Now, what we wanted was, uh, let us say, instead of when the government <clears throat> wins that first election, instead of turning around and saying, well, now what do we do? I suppose they had a, a set of policies already crafted and ready for. So the Omega Project uh, set up uh, 20 subcommittees, average of five persons, between four and seven, uh, to investigate each single Department of State. 
So we had an omega team on uh, defense, on uh, agriculture, on industry, on business, on education, on health. And they examined the whole remit of the department and, and came up with uh, policy proposals that would change it almost beyond belief. And so we published it as the, the Omega file or the Omega project. And when the Thatcher government was re-elected, there, were, <clears throat> there was already a set of policies ready to go that it could start implementing straight away. So instead of spending months working out what to do and how to do it, it had a manual in its hand uh, telling it what to do. And there was a small added bonus is that many of the people, young, ambitious people who served on those uh, Omega committees were themselves elected to parliament and they were able to pressurize in parliament for those ideas to be implemented. Uh, we reckoned in retrospect that um, we got about two thirds of the Omega proposals uh, put into law. So that was quite quite a high strike rate. That's extraordinary. So Nigel Lawson, uh, who later became chancellor, complained that the Thatcher particularly in her first term, uh, was, was relatively soft. It didn't really want to push the boat as much as she subsequently would, and very much the, the privatizations came later, and a lot of uh, the kind of Thatcher-era proposals that we now associate most strongly with her came later. Uh, how... There's a reason for that, by the way. Mm. It, she was not mistress of her cabinet. You know, she, she inherited a party. She won unexpectedly from Edward Heath, and most of the senior figures in the party were, of course, uh, you know, people who'd been colleagues of Edward Heath. Some of them had owed their, their career advancement to Edward Heath, and, and they were not Thatcher people at all. But given the way the Tory party worked, she was more or less forced to have them in her cabinet. So her first-term cabinet was, was by no means uh, one she could count on for support. Indeed, there were many voices in it opposing her policies at every turn. Uh, it was her subsequent ability to, to do reshuffle and to... Uh, win a second term, where she could begin to promote her own people, like Nigel Lawson and others, uh, that, that gave her, the, finally, the support of a cabinet that would go along with her. Hmm. And I think it's interesting that at the ASI, of course, not just the ASI, other organisations as well, were there on the sidelines providing the ideas that were necessary to keep the, the Thatcher revolution alive or to really kickstart the Thatcher revolution in, in her second and, and third term. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, those um, a batch of young uh, members of parliament backbenchers, many of whom, most of whom, had worked on the Omega project, um, didn't want the government to do, you know, the U-turns. It it, 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 it published a paper uh, called No Turning Back, which, which went through the major areas of policy, uh, housing, education, health and uh, industry, uh, with a very strident uh, call for policies uh, that would not, in fact, uh, revert back to the old days of consensus, but would make uh, new strides for giving people more choices and opportunities, uh, more chances, uh, more variety, uh, you know, more private provision. <laughs> and um, it, it was a sensation. Uh, it, it, uh, it featured in every newspaper and it showed Thatcher, you see, that she could now turn around to dissident cabinet colleagues and say, well, it seems the party in parliament doesn't agree with you because a majority of them support these more radical ideas. So in a sense, she was calling on the backbenchers to um, assist her against the big beasts who didn't support her. Yeah, and I think this really speaks to the idea of what's become known as moving the Overton window, so moving the, the confines of what is acceptable debate because, uh, and this is another kind of classic phrase we hear a lot these days, which is that politics is downstream of culture. You've got to 
move the culture in a certain direction so that the politics can follow. And Thatcher needed that, that those broader ideas of both more specifically what to do, but also a different way of thinking if she was going to have any way of actually changing the country. Yes, it's one thing to say, you know, we've had a, a monopoly telephone service, which is one of the least efficient and costliest in the world. Um, why don't we privatise it? Other countries have private telephone systems, so it can be done, but why shouldn't we? That's one thing to say. But quite another, to take that telephone service with its state employees and uh, state infrastructure, switchboards and lines and everything else, uh, and to turn that into a, a private company. And the government brilliantly decided to take the public in on this and uh, let a, let the public apply for shares in, in a popular share issue. Uh, and uh, obviously it was going to meet with opposition from the unions. And so the government uh, bid over the heads of the union leaders and it went straight to the, the workers. And uh, it, it offered them, if... if they worked for the post office for, for, I think, more than two years. They were offered the chance to buy shares at half price. You buy 200 shares and we'll give you another 200. And the unions told them to resist privatisation and put out posters showing a pair of scissors uh, cutting a telephone cable. Uh, but 98, I think 96% or 98% of the workers <laughs> bought the shares. And so uh, that problem was solved. Um, there was some talk that, that uh, a private telephone service might not give the same facilities to disabled people. So a requirement was written into the bill that they must. And then some of the country MPs, the Tory MPs representing the counties, were a little bit nervous. Would a private telephone company seeking profits be as ready to connect to remote villages and hamlets in their constituency? And so a provision was written into the bill that they had to, and that calmed them down. Every single interest group who might have opposed it were systematically either bought off or circumvented. And the public in droves bought shares. My goodness, uh, we had no idea how much money there was in the country, whether there was even enough to, to, to fund the, the, uh, the flotation, but there was. And everyone had a great deal of fun, uh, and the shares rose immediately in value. I think, I'm trying to remember what the premium was. Uh, it was something like 40%, I think. Now, when we were privatising, the, the aim was always to have a first-day premium meaning that the price the shares were issued at, you would try to make sure that when they opened in trading, they would rise in value, as other people who hadn't got shares sought to buy into it. Um, it was a deliberate policy to reward uh, the people who, who bought the shares. Uh, when Mr. Thatcher took office, uh, there were four times as many people belonged to labor unions as there were people who owned shares. By the time she left office, more people owned shares than belonged to labor unions. That was a cultural transformation. I think the high point I remember was when people started running business programs on the radio and business columns in the newspaper. When the Daily Mirror, you know, the bastion of, of, of socialism for so many decades, when they started including a business column in the Daily Mirror, we knew the culture had changed somewhat. Mm. And of course, there's a lot of other things going on at the same time with the, the big bang in the, the financial sector, the opening up of the share market to beyond just that kind of small set of traders. And it feels like it was very much inspired by some kind of public choice thinking there as well, that you need to change the incentives in society. Something else that comes to mind along that, those terms are the privatizing of council homes and the, the idea of having a property owning democracy rather than everyone just renting from the state for the rest of their lives. And once you own a property, you have a stake in society, you have a stake 
in a, in a liberal free market system, the idea of property rights and the idea of responsibility. So you just change people's mindsets by giving them that, that council house that they had yes. never owned before. And the Labour Party used to bid for the council estates by um, uh, advocating subsidised rents, you know, cheap, cheap, cheap rents well below market market value. And of course, people in council houses would vote for that. It was in their interest. Uh, it were, uh, the council estates were reckoned to be more or less rotten boroughs of the Labour Party. Um, but the Thatcher policy of, of um, selling at discounted prices uh, outbid subsidised rents. <laughs> They're offering you cheap rents. We're offering you cheap homes. <laughs> you, you can become a homeowner on the cheap. And, of course, people in droves said that when Thatcher took office, 35% of people in Britain lived in state-owned houses. Uh, they, they were, in fact, clients of the state. Uh, and the, the, the process of privatisation, that is, uh, uh, offering those homes to people who lived in them. You've lived there for two years. Well, that's a, what, what was that, a 20% discount. You've lived there for 10 years. That's a 50% discount. Uh, and, and people in droves, for the first time ever, uh, many had the chance to acquire a property. Now. When ordinary people died, you know, they left their furniture to their children. Uh, now they were leaving houses to their children, you know, uh, a, a substantial capital value there. Uh, and that was something that had never before uh, been seen ex- except out of the upper middle class and above. And now it was quite ordinary people, you know, uh, people in working class occupations who were able to become homeowners. And of course, as you mentioned, the, the incentives were there. And you could walk down the street and you would see instantly which council houses had been bought by their tenants, former tenants. And the reason is they were maintained. They painted the doors, they fixed the window frames, and they, they, they lasted longer. The, the owner-occupied homes um, were, were maintained more promptly and more diligently. And they lasted longer than the state-owned ones, where you had to wait for the council to get around to sending some people to fix up the leak a month later and things like that. So when it's your own property, you look after it. That's, that was a thing, you know, that's fairly obvious to us all now, but it wasn't then. So after you had this huge influence and specific um, policy influence in the UK, you then went on uh, to find this demand internationally for the ASI's expertise. And am I right to say you kind of went around, particularly as the Iron Curtain fell in the early, early 90s, consulting on on how to do the similar kind of privatizations and the similar marketizations of society that we saw mm. so successful in the UK. Yes, it started as, as a cop-out on our part. Um, you know, as Britain's success was seen around the world and the privatizations were, you know, widely in mind, we'd get delegations from foreign countries coming to visit us in our shabby little offices. And, uh, well, we talked to them for an hour about, you know, how to do it. And um, it got to be very time-consuming. It was a bit of a pain. So, um, you know... We, we began organising conferences on privatisation that they could uh, that they could attend, so so they wouldn't really be taking up our time individually. And we got all of the high performers from Britain's privatisation industry to come and speak at those conferences. And of course, many of them, in doing so, uh, acquired uh, clients. That is, the other countries whose delegates attended those conferences hired firms like um, Morgan Stanley and, and uh, Pete Marwick and so on to. to um, to advise them on how to do privatisation. And it became um, a major export industry for Britain. The, the expertise uh, acquired during doing it in Britain was then, so to speak, sold on abroad. Yes, it, it, it was a major international thing. And, of course, the, the collapse of the evil empire, the fall of the Iron Curtain, 
meant that countries wanted to transition from having been command socialist economies into being vibrant market economies. And uh, that was quite some process because in some cases, there was barely no one alive who'd ever experienced a private enterprise or a market economy. And so they really, some of them, some of the more recent ones, the ones post-World War II, yes, but there are earlier ones who, who'd never known anything other than a centrally directed socialist economy. And that took quite some doing, you know. Adam Smith, of course, famously said, you know, little is needed to lift a nation from, from the depths of poverty to, to the... Um, Heights of comparative affluence, but um, peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice. Well, we now had peace, but these countries didn't have easy taxes, and most of them had nothing like a tolerable administration of justice. You know, there was no such thing as contract law. There was no such thing as, as uh, any kind of process of mergers and acquisitions. There was no stock market. Uh, so it, it really, in many cases, British expertise had to go and build it up from scratch. Mm. And after that, I suppose into the '90s, you you think the ASI would have a bit of a um, a bit of a lull as you enter the new Labour era. But of course, there was still a lot of contribution to the ASI mode over those periods. Yeah, many people thought that with the um, departure of Margaret Thatcher, you know, we'd lose influence. But in fact, we had um, probably more influence on John Major, um, certainly more than people expected. Um, he put me on his uh, Citizens Charter Advisory Panel, for example. Um, he regularly uh, attended our, um, our, our meetings. He did dinners on our behalf uh, as Prime Minister. Um, when, when New Labour came in, um, we, 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 we picked and chose uh, which ones to work with. Um, the New Labour people were actually very keen. They, they would come along to our meetings and pick up ideas. Uh, the old Labour types, the, the guys who'd been retired trade unionists, you know, spent 50 years in Parliament, they wouldn't touch us with a barge pole, you know, <laughs> as far as they were concerned, we were the enemy. Um, but we got along well with the new Labour people, and um, we, we gave quite a favourable uh, report on early uh, new Labour, because, you know, they were doing things that, that we'd advocated for, for, for years. We could hardly criticise them. We could hardly criticise them, for example, or giving the Bank of England its independence, because we'd advocated that for two decades. Uh, and it was done within days of, of New Labour taking office. Um, but, you know, gr- gradually the, the, the old ways reasserted themselves. And um, many of the gains that had been made in, in areas like education and health were, were, were clawed back by the unions. And so our, our uh, so to speak, goodwill towards New Labour lasted only uh, you know, a, few, a few years. And, and then, you know, we began to look to the next conservative administration, trying to influence the people currently out of office as to what to do when they achieved office. Mm. So a key focus of the ASI from the very beginning is this educational and, and student outreach angle. Uh, I, I think I've, I've read the story about how you began the ASI by, by trying to bring over students from the States and, and giving them an opportunity to be educated in the UK, but of course, it then became a lot more broader than that with uh, hundreds of internships over the years, Freedom Week, the Next Generation or TNG. Why the focus on students and, and what do you think that, that has helped achieve? Curious enough, it, it, it all began um, with someone who was a junior lab technician. I, on one of my school visits in North London, you know, a junior lab technician must have been, what, about 16, uh, came up and said, uh, you're, you're 
conferences are all so expensive. Your publications are all, you know, they cost a lot of money. You know, young people haven't got any money. Why don't you do something for young people? And so we, all, we went back and took that very seriously. And we started organizing on, on the first Tuesday of the month, something we call um, The Next Generation. Uh, the name indeed gives away its lineage for, for a, a TV series called Star Trek, The Next Generation, had recently come out. And so ours was The Next Generation. And uh, it's, it's still running uh, all these years later. Um, uh, fundamentally, it's for people age group uh, 18 through 30, give or take. Uh, and um, we simply bring them together. Uh, we have a, and, and wine is provided. Uh, and we have a speech for 10 minutes from whoever interesting is in town. And um, we made a habit of timing the speech with an alarm clock. And when the alarm clock went ping, you know, even a cabinet minister had to stop. <laughs> the theory is that um, if you're sitting down, you, you can you can concentrate on the longer speech. If you're standing up, uh, you're wondering, how long is this speaker going to go on? Uh, when can I get my wine glass refilled? And, and you get to be a little bit edgy and less attentive. But if you know it's going to be 10 minutes, you'll listen with rapt attention. And it proved very popular format. And we're, we're still doing that. Absolutely. It's how, I, in fact, I first came across the Anna Smith Institute when I was here as a master's student um, not too many years ago, I uh, saw this opportunity for meeting other young, like-minded people and a free drink and an interesting speaker, and it was irresistible. Yes, and people don't come to listen to the speaker for the most part. I mean, they enjoy listening to them. They actually come to meet each other. Exactly. They come to network with each other, you know, because there you're meeting all of the free market libertarians from all over. You know, so People would, would, would come down from other universities to, to, to spend the afternoon in London so they could come to that meeting. And in the thick of it, I think that one of the backstories is that some of the characters met at a TNG. Yes, we've had several. Uh, the, the, um, the, the current uh, chief economic advisor to the White House uh, met his, his uh, partner at a TNG meeting. Yes, indeed. We, we've had several of those over the years. But, we, you know, it's, it's never been a marriage bureau. That's, that's not its objective. Just, a, just an un- unintentional byproduct. How would you characterize the kind of last decade or so of the ASI under this kind of new conservative government that's very different to the Thatcher era and potentially even getting worse over time? It was you had the kind of Cameron Osborne era at least focused on fiscal responsibility, but we're seeing less and less of that and less and less of the kind of free market disposition in the Tories. What contribution do you think the ASI has been able to make during that period? Well, of course, we've been keeping up the pressure from, from outside. Um, uh, fundamentally, don't forget that the, the government elected in 2010 was, was not a conservative government. It was a coalition government. And therefore, it was constrained in what it could do by the need to keep the liberals on side. And, and they numbered 50-odd seats. You know, you, you, couldn't, you, you couldn't lose those and win a vote. Uh, and, and then um, when Cameron did win his overall majority in uh, 2015, remember, it only lasted a year. And then uh, we, we had the Theresa May administration, which was constrained by not having a majority at all. So the, the ability of conservative governments to do conservative things has been somewhat diminished. Uh, and of course, uh, now Boris Johnson, elected with a, what he called a stonking majority uh, last December, has been constrained by the coronavirus. And that has severely restricted what the government is able to do and has dictated much of its policy and taken much of its time. So from the outside, you know, we continue to advocate uh, free markets, fairly libertarian positions, but we do recognize that governments do have these constraints on them and, and we don't expect them to do everything all at once. You know, we, we always say that it, it's like in a corridor, you push at every door 
And when you find one that gives, you push harder at that one. And if we find the government weakening or, or being a little more tolerant on one of our policies, we then mount a campaign on that. So you have to be practical and pragmatic. Hmm. I, I think in many ways we're potentially in the midst of another kind of broader ideological battle when it comes to the post-COVID world. There's a lot of people, particularly on the left, who now say we need a new settlement, a new bigger role for government, businesses less focused on profit. Uh, what do you think from the kind of journey of the ASI, what do you think we can learn from what you managed to do in the 70s to, to push back against this new tendency in the 2020s? Well, first of all, um, this is something that always happens. Uh, every single uh, crisis that comes along, uh, people say, well, that's it. Uh, that's the end of capitalism. We're now going to need a new system. You know, uh, and now, uh, you know, they're saying uh, the same uh, coronavirus. Oh, we're going to need a new green revolution. You know? and, and always it means government has to do more of what I say they should do rather than what people might actually want to do. So you basically... Um, you, you simply make the case that where people do have choices and, and they, they shape the future, so to speak, cumulatively between them, the, the, the uh, decisions are dispersed, they're made by individuals, and collectively added together, the choices made by those individuals determine the future shape of society. Now, that's easy to do with, with a free market system, because in a free market system, people have the choices about what to produce, to put on the market, where to innovate. And people as consumers have the choice which services to patronize, to buy, which products to get. And, and so their individual choices and decisions add up to make the new reality. Now, there are, of course, there are those on the left who don't want this to happen. <laughs> they want their vision of what the world ought to be like to become reality with the force of law. But they do this every time. They did this after the 2008 financial crisis. They're doing it now. Oh, and they'll do it at the next crisis. Uh, it, so you, you learn to, to live with it and to ride it. And just painstakingly point out every time that they're simply wrong. The world doesn't work like that. Mm, and you suppose I have to reiterate the message that free markets, limited government, democracy, individual rights are all responsible for delivering immense human prosperity over the last few hundred years. And we can see in places that didn't get them, North Korea or East Germany or Cuba or Venezuela today, people become poor and desolate. And in places where people are freer, uh, prosperity tends to come naturally, like somewhere like Hong Kong after the war. Yes, not only do they deliver the goods, and they have delivered the goods spectacularly on a world scale. I mean, there have never been so many people lifted out of poverty in the last two decades than they have in the whole of human existence. But also, they go with the grain of human nature. People want to make provision for their future, for their families. They want to make decisions about what to do with their lives. And those things are all possible in a free market liberal society, uh, rather than one in which people are expected to walk into roles that have been mapped out for them by someone else, someone in the civil service or in government. So not only does it work, it, it's, it's more moral. It enables people to be master of their fate, to be more in command of their lives. And because it is, you know, A, more efficient and B, more moral, it's two powerful arguments why this, this system is not going to be replaced by someone, some system dreamed up by a few intellectuals sitting around a table. Well, thank you very much for joining the Pin Factory podcast, Madsen. Uh, that's Madsen Perry, the president and co-founder of the Adam Smith Institute. Uh, my name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. If you're interested in a comprehensive history of the ASI, you can read Madsen's book, Think Tank, The Story of the Adam Smith Institute, which is available from 
Amazon and from the Adam Smith website at adamsmith.org. And until next week, thank you very much for listening.